Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Paul Shank. Thank you. A very, very special joy always to come uh, to you. Um, we're going to try to cover a pretty uh, broad uh, subject tonight in a relatively brief period of time, so uh, we'll uh, get right to it. Um, I look at the title tonight, uh, Spiritual Bondage, the Cult of Death and the Call to Holiness. This was assigned to me. And uh, when, I saw this, when I saw this topic, I, um, I wrote back to Deacon and I said, now, is, is, there a particular, uh, is, there, is there a particular material you want to cover, an objective you want to achieve with this topic? He wrote back and said, uh, no, you have complete freedom uh, with the topic. And uh, I thought to myself, well, that's a little bit like saying I'd like you to give a lecture on uh, Parisian architecture of the uh, 14th century uh, and uh, you have complete freedom with that topic. I mean, it's a little bit narrow, a little bit broad, but we're going to go uh, as best we can uh, into it. I see its correlation, of course, to uh, today's um, solemnity uh, of all saints, and uh, you'll um, uh, understand if I, if I lose my connections a little bit, the liturgies were a little higher today, two solemn high masses uh, today. Um, uh, actually, there were three. The third one I, I, I wasn't a part of. Uh, we had two English and then one Latin, and um, the bishop had the, the Latin, so uh, he let me off the hook. <laughs> no, I, I told the folks this morning I had six years of Hebrew and Aramaic. I had three years of Greek. I had one semester of Latin, so uh, that's the reason why I was with them and the other priests were with the Bishop of the Latin Mass. So, um, all right, well, uh, we're going to just take a, a, a small um, passage from the Book of Wisdom, and uh, this is going to be taken from Wisdom, the first chapter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. I'm reading it to you from that magnificent of all English translations by Monsignor Knox. Wisdom 1, 13 through 16. Death was never of God's fashioning. Not for his pleasure does life cease to be. What meant his creation, but that all created things should have being? No breed has he created on earth, but for its thriving. None carries in itself the seeds of its own destruction. Think not that mortality bears sway on earth. No end nor term is fixed to a life well lived. 
It is the wicked that have brought death on themselves by word and deed of their own, court death, and melt away in its embrace, keep tryst with it, and lay claim to its partnership. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord our God, by the intercession of all the saints, enlighten our minds. Open our hearts anew on this most wondrous feast day. Help us, O Lord, to grasp the sanctity of life given to us as pure gift, the life which you have presented to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we pray that tonight we may be open anew to you and to the gospel of life. For we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. All saints, pray for us. All holy men and women, pray for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, spiritual bondage, the cult of death, the call to holiness. Now, if I press this, there we are. There's the title that, um, that I was given, um, and you can uh, test me uh, on this after. Did we, did we achieve the purpose here that the title implies? These are very complex subjects, spiritual bondage, the cult of death, the call to holiness. Now, are you prepared to stay together here um, a few weeks? <laughs> there is no way we could cover the breadth of this topic in a single um, session. But we'll try to take them in chunks and then break them off into bite-sized pieces. So let's start then with spiritual bondage. Bondage, we will assume, is the opposite of freedom or liberty. When we use the term bondage, we think of it in relation to slavery. A slave is bound not by a voluntary vow, but by coercion by captivity, and by repression. So then, one who is in bondage is not free and needs to be liberated. What do we mean here by spiritual? Well, Father Hardin defines spirit as that which is positively immaterial. It is pure spirit if it has no dependence on matter either for its existence or for any of its activities. God is uncreated pure spirit. The angels are created pure spirits. The human soul is more properly called spiritual, although it can exist independent of the body. It nevertheless, in this life, depends extrinsically on the body for its operations. 
and in the life to come retains a natural affinity for the body with which after the resurrection it will be reunited for all eternity. So, as a slave is bound in body, that is, to physically obey his or her master, do what the master wants done, go where the master wants to go, so the soul, the spiritual part of the individual, in bondage is not free to do what it wants, or should or ought, and cannot go where it wants, where it should, or where it ought. Now, if the soul is not material, but the spirit is, how, or rather, if the soul is not material, but spiritual, how is this? What is this condition like? Well, the soul ought to carry out the commands of God, should do what God wants the soul to do. Let's stay with the uh, previous. There we go. The soul ought to carry out the commands of God. It should do what God wants it to do, to go where God wants the soul to go. And this is a spiritual task, a spiritual destination, not a physical one. The soul in spiritual bondage cannot do spiritually what God wants done, cannot go spiritually where God wants it to go. It is bound up like a hostage with hands behind the back and ankles tied together and perhaps a gag in the mouth, spiritually, of course. Now, we'll talk about how this bondage happens, how it comes about in just a bit. But let's talk now about the cult of death. And here it is. No? There we are. Father Hardin defines cult as a definite form of worship or of religious observance, sometimes rendered cultus, or cultus rather. You see that there's that one semester of Latin <laughs> especially when referring to the worship of the saints. Also, a particular religious group centered around some unusual belief, generally transient in duration and featuring some exotic or imported ritual or other practices. In this sense, the cult of death would refer to some ritualized worship of death, that is, intentions and actions that demonstrate devotion and veneration of death. You remember this sinister personality, Reverend Jim Jones. So let's move away from there and go to this. Pope St. John Paul II used the term culture of death when in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, he wrote of the struggle between the culture of life 
and the culture of death, in which, quote, we cannot restrict ourselves to the perverse idea of freedom mentioned above. We have to go to the heart of the tragedy being experienced by modern man, the eclipse of the sense of God and of man, typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism. So Pope St. John Paul puts secularism at the root of this culture of death. Now, culture is defined as the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. So then, a culture of death is the collective social expression of this devotion to death. This may very well sound implausible, exaggerated, and over the top. A cult? A culture devoted to death? Really? Really? And we'll see it in just a bit. The last part that we'll discuss is the call to holiness. The Catechism of the Catholic Church contains a nicely succinct definition of holiness when it says, all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. All are called to holiness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, the words of our Lord. In order to reach this perfection, the faithful should use the strength dealt out to them by Christ's gift, so that, doing the will of the Father in everything, they may wholeheartedly devote themselves to the glory of God and to the service of their neighbor. Thus, the holiness of the people of God will grow in fruitful abundance, as is clearly shown in the history of the church through the lives of so many saints. And that was driven home for us so well in the liturgies today. The Catechism goes on, spiritual progress tends toward ever more intimate union with Christ. This union is called mystical because it participates in the mystery of Christ through the sacraments, the holy mysteries, and in him in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. God calls all to this intimate union with him, even if the special graces or extraordinary signs of this mystical life are granted only to some for the sake of manifesting the gratuitous gift given to all. The gift that is referred to here would be sanctifying grace, of which the Catechism tells us Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift 
a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God, to act by his love. Habitual grace, the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call, is distinguished from actual graces, which refer to God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. Now, just um, consider sanctification in this language of the catechism and holiness as synonymous. Sanctification and holiness are two sides of the same coin. All right, Or maybe it's two devices on the obverse of the quarter, or maybe it's two devices on the reverse of the half dollar, or however you want to, uh, whatever, however you want to analogize it. Just use the two words interchangeably. So then, holiness is living in response to the invitation to an intimate, personal, loving relationship with Jesus Christ sustained and aided by God's grace through the sacraments, producing spiritual fruits, which are defined by St. Paul in the New Testament as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that a remedy for what ails us today. That beautiful list of the fruits of the Spirit, which are given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. Now, let's return to our topic. You can see how I wrestled with this title that, <laughs> that Deacon gave me, right? Spiritual bondage the cult of death, and the call to holiness. So we see then that the Christian is called from, called out of, and what the Christian is called to or into. The Christian is called out of a habitual devotion to death, and into a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle life of self-control. This is the life of God to which we are called by the gospel. So here then is the tension. It is the conflict between the enslavement to death which involves disintegration, dissolution, and disappearance. Disintegration, dissolution, and disappearance. And into the freedom of living for and with Jesus Christ, whom the scriptures call the author of life. Indeed, we are invited to live forever with him 
and to never die. Now, to some, this may seem a rather esoteric topic. And I must admit, when I first read the title that Deacon gave me, I thought it was a little esoteric. What has this got to do with where I live, my experience, my world? Well, a lot, a whole lot, every day. You and I hear and see news of destruction, devastation, and death. School massacres, terrorist attacks, drive-by shootings, murder-suicides, barrel bombings. On and on we could go. We are all part and parcel of this encompassing culture of death. Weddings, birthdays, baptisms, brisses, anniversary. That was the Ashkenazic uh, brisses. You know, uh, circumcisions. Anniversaries, cures, recoveries, confirmations, bar mitzvahs, quinceaneras, retirements. These are all the expression of a culture of life. I'm sure that every one of us would much rather have more of these and less of the other. Now, where does this cult of death come from? The Catechism describes or explains Original justice is now destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions, their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Visible creation has become alien and hostile to man. Because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage of decay. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold, still quoting the catechism here, don't look for it up on the screen, I left this slide behind, so you'll just have to... Finally, the catechism says, the consequence explicitly foretold for this obedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. Death, therefore, is neither good nor natural. It is the consequence of sin. That is why it is always sad, even with the promise of salvation. I was on a plane. I had gone down to visit a colleague of mine uh, who was having uh, an eye removed for cancer. And at the end of the day, I got back on a plane and we were out on the tarmac 
and uh, there was a storm blowing up, lightning on the runway. They wouldn't let the plane take off. There was a man next to me, and uh, he was rather rumpled. Uh, he had his feet up uh, against the, um, the uh, what do you call that when the wall is facing you there? The bulkhead. And uh, he was pretty frustrated. And uh, he was expressing that frustration. And uh, trying to relieve uh, his uh, consternation over this, uh, I, I struck up a conversation. I said, um, where are you going? Oh, he said, this is the third, third plane that's been delayed or canceled today. He said, uh, I've got a cancer surgery in the morning in mid-state Pennsylvania. I'm, a, I'm consulting on the surgery. It wasn't his. He was, the, he was the surgeon consultant on it. And he said, I've got to make it there in the morning, you know. And so he said he was expressing his frustration with me. And uh, I said to him, um, well, I said, uh, let's just hope, you know, we make some progress here tonight and you get in where you're going. And well, he didn't think there was much of a, much of a chance of that. Uh, so as we, as I kind of talked him down a little bit, he, um, he said to me, well, what is it you do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I'm traveling, I try to be clever, you know, because it's a work of evangelization. So, um, I said, uh, well, I'm a minister. And uh, he said, uh, a minister? He said, you're not a Baptist, are you? <laughs> and uh, I said, no. He said, well, what are you then? And I said, uh, well, I said, uh, uh, it, there was a period of transition in my life. I said, I'm actually a Jewish Christian. <laughs> and he said, look at that. He said, I was at a colleague's funeral this morning, and he said he was Jewish, his wife was Christian, and he said the rabbi came out and he did the thing, you know, he did his thing. He seemed very familiar with the thing that the rabbi did, so I assumed I was talking to a Jewish man, and he said, you know, the rabbi came out and he did his thing, and then the Christian minister came out, and he said, he said, death is not an enemy to a Christian, and he said, I turned to my wife and I said, I want to learn more about what Christians believe about life after death. So he said, start. <laughs> Just like that. He said, start. He, this man was <laughs> ready, you know. So 45 minutes waiting for that flight to take off. We started in Genesis and we ended with the resurrection. And uh, we exchanged uh, cards, um, and uh, turned out he was, uh, he was a member of the Nobel Prize uh, Committee for Science uh, in the United States. He was former chairman of the Academy of Science in Philadelphia. Uh, anyways, he was a big macher, to say the least. <laughs> so uh, I had that opportunity. But what, what, what alerted him, what, what what he responded to was this affirmation, death is not an enemy to a Christian. He wanted to know more about that. Humanity was created to live in eternal harmony with God, each other, and in creation. Death destroyed that condition and therefore had to be remedied. So God set in motion a plan of salvation 
culminating in Christ, who would save his people from their sins. The announcement of the realization of this plan is the Evangelion, the gospel, the good news. The epistle to the Hebrews, which is one of my fa I know we should never announce a favorite book in the Bible. This is certainly one of my favorites. Um, and it's not actually a letter. It's a homily. Imagine sitting for a homily as long as the book of Hebrews. <laughs> that explains why we think that these were probably Jewish slaves in Rome that were part of this congregation. No place else to go. The letter to the epistle to the Hebrews states, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. That's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. The Navarre Bible explains this. Christ chose to submit to death in order to destroy death and the power of the devil. The Council of Trent teaches that as a result of original sin, man incurred the wrath and indignation of God and consequently incurred death. And together with death, bondage in the power of him who from that time had the empire of death. In the words of the preface for Eucharistic Prayer 2, fulfilling your will and gaining for you a holy people, he, Christ, stretched out his hands as he endured his passion so as to break the bonds of death and manifest the resurrection. And St. Paul tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is not a friend. It is an enemy, though a vanquished one. Christ embraced death precisely to undo it, not enforce it. All right, now we can keep going. So then, where does the culture of death come from? There are many sources. To begin with, Pope St. John Paul shows us that this impulse uh, to kill has been with us since Cain slew his brother Abel. Since then, humankind has been marred by bloodshed. But the cult of death we face now has its own particularly nefarious features. Unlike the Wild West or even urban mayhem, the cult of death has become institutionalized and pervasive among the intelligentsia, the ruling class, and the media. Condescend to working people, the lesser educated and the poor, and you won't find the kind of zeal and enthusiasm 
for abortion, euthanasia, embryonic research, and even the trading and trafficking in victims' body parts as you do among the meritocracy. Uh, now, two decades ago, I was arrested in Atlanta. Never mind why. Oh, you probably are interested. Um, so we went down to support a pro-life initiative there and um, out in the rain and uh, night and day, keeping vigil at the abortion businesses. And uh, finally, one CEO on the line said, if you as so much as touch my officer's shoes, I'm going to charge you with assault and battery on an officer. They're going to take you away. You're going to go away for a long time. Uh, I said, officer, there's no controversy with you here. We will move about on our hands and knees. This way you'll know there's no, uh, no threat. So we moved around outside on our hands and knees and uh, crawling like this. Well, you know, it's pouring rain. You're crawling. There's scores of people, there's media pressing in, there's all kinds of shouting going on, all kinds of, uh, well, somewhere, somehow, I must have crawled on an officer's shoes. Uh, and boom, I'm, I'm, I'm picked up, thrown into the paddy wagon, and uh, uh, a police officer leaned in, precious Atlanta officer, big grin, missing two front teeth. He said, he said, God bless you, brother. I'm with you. He said, then he slammed the doors. And uh, that was that. Uh, good Christian brother doing his job. And uh, off, off, I waited. I waited for the other pro-lifers, you know. I was waiting for this great reunion in the paddy wagon. We're going to spend a few days in jail. This is going to be a great time of fellowship and prayer. And, and uh, nothing, nobody. That was it. The police were done. They were like, we're out of here, you know. Off we go. Well, what I didn't know, this was way, wee hours of the morning, and what I didn't know was this was the end of a big vice sweep overnight. And uh, so I was in the paddy wagon with uh, a dozen or so prostitutes. Uh, I came home, I came home after a while, and I told the folks at church, I said, I spent uh, the week with 12 prostitutes and I never had a better time in my life. Uh, so we went into the, we went into the uh, lockup, the city lockup in Atlanta, and uh, they handcuffed us all together. Now, they let me keep my prayer book, my Bible, uh, and uh, now I'm with the, well, 11 ladies. There was one on the end of the line. I couldn't quite tell, but there were 11, and, and then the one on the end, and uh, I, I really, I couldn't tell with all, I just couldn't tell. But anyway, so there we were together, and these women were so dear, they, we, we, we moved together for a day and a half, overnight, 
and then into the next day. Every time we moved to, we moved together and put us in the holding cells together and so forth. Everything was overflowing, uh, including the toilets and the seats. But uh, the whole prison was overflowing everywhere. And uh, then, you know, they said to me, they called me reverend or pastor, and they said, um, pray for us. And uh, they said, oh, when they, they, they knew why I was picked up, they, they, uh, they said, uh, oh, oh, we would never do that to our babies. We have babies. Show me pictures. Ask me to bless, the, bless their children. Tell me their names. Uh, and uh, it was just... It was, it was a wondrous thing to see the heart of these broken, shattered, used, abused, used up women, and yet their hearts were still so filled with love for their children and the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life. Um, you know, when we press down uh, to where it's no longer an abstraction or it's no longer an ideology, it's no longer a political platform, it's no longer a... Uh, it, 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 we, we find that there isn't this zeal uh, for the advancement of the culture of death. Now, why is this? Well, here we turn to the zeitgeist to the spiritual, or more precisely, the psychological element. Why is death such an obsession with the chattering classes? Why is the objective of death, whether it is abortion, whether it is euthanasia, whether it's uh, embryonic research, uh, whether it's uh, assisted suicide, whether it's legalized uh, lethal dosage, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, suicide, uh, why is this? Where does this come from? What is the root of it? Well, we've already discussed the broader, uh, sp the, the broader scope of this that Pope St. John Paul enlightened uh, as he did for us, and um, Popes Benedict and Francis have both addressed it as well. Um, but we would find a clue to this in one of the most influential personalities of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud. Freud is widely credited as the founder of modern psychoanalysis. He's known primarily for his psychoanalytic theory that human beings suffer neuroses due to conflicts involving their subconscious drives. Freud posited that the controlling drive was the will to pleasure. And so we suffer neuroses primarily because of sexual repression, the morals of religion, and the mores of society frustrate and inhibit the libido and so cause psychic pain that must be ameliorated through psychoanalytic treatment. Freud's Viennese clientele were mostly aristocrats and elites. This bothered him, but not enough for him to uh, forsake the income. Uh, as psychoanalysis caught on and spread throughout the West, it remained the panacea of the hoity-toity. 
the bourgeoisie, the upper crust. In the U.S., it would take some while to catch on, but became very popular with entertainers and with the Hollywood crowd. For the intelligentsia and the media, psychoanalysis replaced the clergy and the confessional. We're all too familiar with the resulting sexual revolution. But what we might not know is that toward the end of his career and near the end of his life, Sigmund Freud proposed another equally powerful, if not overwhelming, subconscious drive that had to be contended with. In his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, published in 1930, he wrote this. I drew the conclusion that, besides the instinct to preserve living substance and join it into ever larger units, libido, there must exist another contrary instinct seeking to dissolve those units and bring them back to their primeval inorganic state. That is today, that is to say, as well as eros, there is another instinct toward death. Freud advanced the notion that eros, eroticism, and death were, quote, closely alloyed, so that you would not have one without the other. The death drive manifested itself in aggressive and violent sex, Furthermore, it would turn outward to destroy something else outside so that it would not destroy itself. For Freud, life itself could only be explained by the drive toward death. In a recent book titled Enjoying What We Don't Have, Todd McGowan, a professor at the University of Vermont, kicks Freud's death drive theory up a few notches and proposes a political theory based on the universal drive to death. He calls it a society of the death drive. McGowan asserts that Freud's insight on the driving force toward death is actually the solution to our political problems. Hmm. He suggests that the death drive society would reject the false promises of progress, either towards heaven, utopia, or a hopeful future, and limit itself to only what is, not something that might be. So death itself, whether of natural life, or of dreams, or aspirations, of a better life, or a better world, or of eternal life, prevails and becomes the foundational principle of all human experience. Death is the point. Now, I'm sure that those of you who are uh, prospective employers, you'll be glad to know that he has tenure at the University of Vermont, and he's not looking for a job from you. Death is the point, death of everything, the end of everything, based on Freud's theory of the drive to death. Now, it begins to make some sense why the psychoanalyzed generation is obsessed with death, 
abortion, euthanasia, embryonic research, physician-assisted suicide, legal lethal dosing, and so on, even perhaps why it is that the political class seems impotent in the face of escalating lethal violence and massacres. Could it be that the subtle but pervasive idea of an insurmountable and inevitable drive to death is irresistible and undefeatable? That eros, sexuality, is inextricably linked to death. That life cannot be understood without the concomitant drive toward death. That sex and death are closely alloyed. No wonder the ruling class has taken up with a cult of death. If Freud did not lead them to it, he certainly contributed to it and gave it a pseudoscientific and even therapeutic patina. Now, while Freud's notion of the drive toward death does not adequately or thoroughly explain the contemporary dalliance with death and dying, it reflects the absence of faith in something greater than death. In a phrase, life eternal. The last thing that I'd like to consider is the spiritual bondage to death and its remedy in the gospel. If Freud explains why death has become so popular, he does not explain the bondage to death. For that, we must turn to a much more malevolent source, uh, force, the enemy of our souls, to Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary spoken of in the letter to the Hebrews, him who has power of death, that is, the devil. Freud and his followers may have posited a theory of death, but the Satan has fomented a huge campaign of death and destruction across the ages. Doomed to recapitulate his loss of the life of heaven, and now consigned to the abyss, he has drawn countless minions into death's domains indoctrinating them and inspiring them to commit meaningless and useless murders by the millions. Look at the world today compared to the world of a hundred years ago and you see how meaningless and useless the massive campaigns of war and vengeance and genocide were and are. Nothing changes. There is only incalculable destruction, devastation, and devaluation of civilization. Death is not and never has been a friend. Death is certainly not a deity to be adored. Death is an enemy to be finally vanquished at the resurrection and until then is rendered impotent by the firm hope of life eternal in Christ Jesus. Life, not to be political, trumps death. In the words of Eucharistic Preface One for the Dead, I wish I could say more masses for the dead. I love this preface. In Him, Christ Jesus, the hope of the blessed resurrection has dawned, that those saddened by the certainty of dying might be consoled by the promise of immortality to come. Indeed, for your faithful Lord, Life is changed and not ended. And when this earthly dwelling turns to dust 
an eternal dwelling is made ready for them in heaven. Let's close then with the call to holiness. Father Hardin, let's make a nice contrast there, <laughs> says this about holiness. Creatures are holy by their relation to God. Holiness in creatures is either subjective or objective or both. It is subjective essentially by the possession of divine grace and morally by the practice of virtue. Objective holiness in creatures denotes their exclusive consecration to the service of God, priests by their ordination, religious by their vows, sacred places, vessels, and vestments by the blessing they receive and the sacred purpose for which they are reserved. Notice that Father Hardin has relationship with God as the primary element of holiness. This relationship is also referred to as knowledge, as intimate knowledge. In his high priestly prayer, in St. John's Gospel, our Lord prays, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. God is life. Pope St. John Paul stated, eternal life and natural life are coextensive. So holiness arises from relationship to God. Relationship to God is the source of life. In this way, life overcomes death. The enemies of life, murder, Suicide, abortion, execution, unjust war are opposed to God, opposed to the eternal law, to the moral law. Again, in St. John's Gospel, our Lord says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Greek term translated abundance is perison, from perisos, an adjective derived from peri, all around excess. Properly, all around, more than, abundantly, beyond what is anticipated, exceeding expectation, more abundant, going past the expected limit. It is this quality, this degree, this extent of life, superabundance, that God offers and provides. There is more, much more, to the call to holiness, but this is the essence of it. As our Lord prays in St. John's Gospel, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Pope Francis, in his first encyclical, building on Benedict XVI, wrote, At the heart of biblical faith is God's love, his concrete concern for every person, his plan of salvation, which embraces all of humanity and creation, culminating in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without insight into these realities, there is no criterion for discerning what makes human life precious and unique. So we have seen that. When in the absence of faith in God and hope of life eternal, there is a cult of death which leads to bondage, a bondage to sin, to fear, to hopelessness. But our Lord calls us and offers to us the way of holiness, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, aided by the Holy Spirit, 
who is called in our creed, the Lord, the giver of As St. Paul exalts, Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we change the culture of death to a culture of life? Well, we foster life in every way. No compromise. No compromise. Um, so we live this out. You know, I, uh, I, I try to encourage folks that w when you take just a, a snapshot of parish life, when you take just a snapshot of family life, when you take just a quick look at generations in love with each other, uh, you see the fruitfulness of life. Life always triumphs over death. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I like to tell people, everyone you have ever known that you know now or will ever know in the future was born pro-life. Everybody. <laughs> Nobody is born pro-death. They have to be talked out of life and talked into death. So all your job is to talk them back into what they've already known. So it's not so hard, is it? Um, but uh, so we foster life. We use uh, the power of our loves, our love for God, our love within our families, our love for each other, our love for life. Um, I don't, uh, it's just not trite. This is not trite. Uh, and, but we have a much greater power than we may first think. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so um, that's all I can say at the, this point, um, is, is foster life. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and people, you know, they, they see that one time I was outside an abortion clinic and a woman came up to me and she said, um, she said, I was in my clerics, and she said, uh, I don't want to have this abortion any more than you want me to have it. But she said, if you, uh, if you don't want me to have this abortion, then you have to talk the baby's father back into coming home and taking care of his children and his family. And I said, let's go. And she said, what? And I said, let's go. Where is he? She said, well, I think he's at his mother's house. And I said, well, let's go. So we jumped in the car, the two of us, and we drove to his mother's house. And I walk, you know, I'm in my clerics, and I walk straight into the house. Remember, it was, uh, it was a long hall, and walked right to the back, and he's sitting there. And I said, sir, your child, your baby's life is in your hands. 
and he, his head fell into his hands and he started sobbing. And I said, I said, come home. Your wife, your babies need you, your child needs you. And uh, with some further contact, follow-up and so forth, he came home, took care of his family. You know, sometimes we have a power that we, we don't think we have. Um, as, as uh, you know, just our love for life can change, a, can change a whole. I was outside an abortion clinic. So um, a colleague of mine, lovely man, wonderful, generous toward the pro-life movement. He and I have done a lot of things together. He's an attorney in Annapolis. And uh, his, his dad was visiting his daughter, uh, that is this, my colleague's sister, up in Harrisburg, where I live and work. And uh, his dad had some uh, major health event, was in the hospital. And uh, he called me, and I said, I'll go see your dad. It was Ash Wednesday that week, so I brought ashes. By this time, his dad is um, unconscious. And uh, when I walked in the room, the family members had just left, I was told, a few minutes before, some time before. Anyway, long and short of it is, I'm, it's too long in the telling. I said, Bud, I knew his dad. I said, Bud, Bud's unconscious. But I brought him ashes. And I said, Bud, uh, oh, I, I immediately knew. He's on the, he's, he's on the threshold of heaven. I, I knew it. So I went out to the nurse and I said, call the chaplain to come. Now, I was just going, I was expected to lead prayer at the abortion clinic a few, a few minutes away. So <clears throat> I gave the ashes to Bud and I said, Bud, when the angels come, I said, will you please, if you can spare one, Bud, I said, dispatch one to the abortion clinic. He knew where that was. I said to uh, Hilltop or whatever it was called. Anyway, I said, you know, dispatch an angel, if you can, if, you, if one can be spared. So, okay, so we get it, everything set up, call the family, everything's good. I leave, go down to the abortion mill, and I'm le I'm, I have to open in prayer. It's 40 days for life, so I'm going to open in prayer. And I'm praying in front of the clinic, and I feel something go under my nose, whoosh, just like that. I mean, it was just, I felt someone walk under my nose. So I slowly open my eyes, and I see this little girl. And she's, excuse me, that was uncalled for, a young woman. And she's walking up the walk. See, I have five daughters, so I can't help it. Um, one, one daughter's in Europe singing in the opera, and she's still my little girl. So, so she, she's walking up the, the walk, and... Uh, she goes to the door. I can see. It's all glass. I can see the personnel behind the door. And she walks up to the door and grabs the door. and It's locked. Locked. She can't open it. And the people in the clinic are, look, are, are standing like this uh, behind the glass. They can see her. She stops. She, opens, she gets her phone. She's calling inside the clinic. That's very clear. And nobody's opening the door. It's locked. It's, uh, it's cold. So I said, uh, sweetheart, I said... Um, you, you don't have a jacket, you don't have gloves. Come down, come down here. Take my coat, take my gloves. It's too cold to be outside. And uh, she walks down to get my coat and gloves. And I said, honey, this is not the, you don't want to be here. This is not the right place for you. I said, this is abortion. You don't want abortion. So you want to take care of your baby. You want to have your baby. You're, are you alone? She said, no, my mother's in the car on the corner. I said, can we go to your mom? 
she said, sure. So we go to walking to the car. It's snow on the ground. So I kneel in the snow, and Mom rolls down the window. And I said, Mom, you don't want your baby here. Uh, your grandbaby needs you, needs your love, you know. And Mom starts crying, sobbing, and says, I know, I know, I had one, and I don't want her to go through what I went through. So, so we call the doctor. So we call the doctor on the phone. We make an appointment. They're going over there. They, the hospital women's center at Holy Spirit Medical calls me and says they're here. They're in our care. Everything's good. Uh, there's going to be no abortion and so forth and so on. We have a power through loving life. We have the power. We can foster life. Okay, enough. Deacon, I apologize. Father, you mentioned Hebrews uh, 3.14. Now, since the children share in blood and flesh, he likewise shared in them that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Seems to me he's still walking around. What, what, is this something to ha happen in the future? Did this happen? What, what does this mean? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The promise of Christ uh, compresses time, and the future resurrection becomes a reality now through the firm promise of Christ that we have this promise of resurrection and so hope does not disappoint St. Paul says um, hope uh, <clears throat> faith is the evidence the faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen right so death is vanquished by the very fact that it must, the devil, with the power of death, must uh, be confronted with the reality that all that he has endeavored to do will be undone uh, at the resurrection. So uh, remember what Pope St. John Paul said. He said, natural life and eternal life are coextensive. One does not follow the other. They are coextensive. They are uh, in parallel, they are integrated, they are inseparable. Another, another verse says he, that, that Satan walks around in a rage because he knows he just has a little time. So what, what you're seeing now is a two-year-old fit by the devil. He's going crazy. He has very short time. Well said, well said. Uh, you know, one of the things that I like to deprive the evil one of is a name. Um, he has no name. Hasatan, in Hebrew we say hasatan, ha, the definite article, the Satan, the adversary. It's not his name. He has no name. Don't, uh, he, you know, just, you don't have to say his name. Uh, and uh, well said. Uh, in, in a rageful fit, he, he tries to make his work uh, evident, uh, but in the end, that trumpet undoes all that if, if we love Christ and love life. Um, and don't succumb, don't succumb to that, um, to that, uh, uh, um, you know, don't, don't succumb to that culture or cult of death. Um, instead, uh, love life. 
Thank you so much, Father, for all of your words. Um, I am over here. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, um, as a fairly young person um, who is in touch with other fairly young people, I see a lot of um, apathy and a lot of relativism in our culture. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any particular, you know, ways that we could get people to care and, and pay attention to why these, these types of things are important because so often people just, uh, you know, they respect your beliefs but they don't want to follow them and they see no reason why they should. Um, so do you have any wisdom to offer on that? The only thing I would say is make it all personal. Make it personal. I was giving a talk at a law school and uh, I was driving to the campus in New York, so it wasn't so far. I like to drive, because so I, I, I like to think when I'm driving. And so I was driving to New York to, talk, to give a talk at this law school. And um, so I knew what I was going into. And uh, I was driving, and I was thinking to myself, what am I going to say that they don't already know I'm going to say? And what are they going to say that I don't already know they're going to say? And so I was asking the Holy Spirit for help, and when I got to the, I was just about to arrive at the campus when suddenly it was like this, like the Holy Spirit helped me. And I went into the classroom, to the lecture hall, and I said, um, I said, I was introduced, you know, as a pro-life activist, and I said, so there's nothing I'm going to say to you that you don't already know I'm going to say, and I said, I fairly well know what your response is going to be, so I said, I'd rather ask you a I'd rather ask you a few questions myself. Would that be all right? And I looked at the professor, and she said yes. So I said, um, I said, how many in how many here would approve of an abortion for um, a um, for sex selection? Uh, the, the, the parents of the child want a or parents. I use the word fetus mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't start a stink. And I said the 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 the, the, the the, the prospective parents uh, want uh, a, uh, a, a boy, uh, but the fetus is female. Uh, how many would approve of abortion in that case? Nobody raised their hand. I said, well, what about for a mixed race? Um, mother's white, her parents are white, they can't bear the idea of having a black grandchild. How many would approve of an abortion? Nobody. Uh, would approve. I said, well, so what about a disability? Um, there's a good, uh, there, there's a very good chance this child's going to have a profound disability. Um, this would be a disabled child. How many would approve? Nobody raised their hand. I said, well, if they discover that there is a genetic origin to homosexuality and the fetus is gay, uh, but the, they don't want a gay fetus, uh, then uh, how many would approve of abortion? Nobody raised their hand. And we went through, I went through about 10. Uh, and nobody raised their hand. And I said, well then, I said, would someone volunteer what you would approve abortion for? And they slid down in their seats and they're looking at each other. <laughs> nobody said a word. Um, now what happened there? I just made it all personal. There was something about each of those children that, that everybody in the room could recognize. And I think if we make things very personal, um, try to drive the conversation to the person, to the individual, rather than categories or, um, 
uh, or ideas or, you know, I, I think we just try to, try to work things to be very personal. And, you know, if anything marks our, our era, um, it's the focus on the, on the individual, right? So if we can do that, if we can use that, maybe that'll be helpful. Thank you very much, Father Shane. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.